today, as Daniel mentioned at the close of our service, we will be taking up our pledges for next year related to our capital campaign that pays for the facility that you're in now and the other facilities on our campus. Um, when we decided to build this building a long time ago, it was not, uh, believe it or not, it was not so that we could sit in comfort and extravagance. It was because we wanted to make room for our friends and we wanted to make room for people to join us so that we could have a core of people here so that we could share the love of God with the nations. And uh, that's why we built this. And we are ever so close to being debt-free within just three, four years. Uh, we, sh we as a church, if we stay the course, we'll be debt-free. And you know that I want you to know that your leaders have already made their pledges and they've already committed to more than a third of what's needed for next year for a stay on course. So by their example, they're inviting you at the close of our service to join us, to join us in, in what is, I hope will be for you an act of worship, an act of generous worship to fuel the church in her mission and to express your love for the God that loves you so. So I'd like to get us ready for that by teaching from a passage in the Bible that Daniel alluded to that has on its surface almost nothing to do with uh, taking an offering for a capital campaign. So if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, I'd like to pray for us again, and then we'll, we'll look at that passage together. Father, have mercy on us now. Press your love down deep into our hearts so that we would respond to it as we ought. And we ask for the Spirit's help and in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been to the church more than just a handful of times, you know that I'm a sucker for a good story. I love a good story. Um, for instance, I just finished reading The Princess Bride. Um, who knew it was a book? I thought it was just a movie. So I, I just finished reading that. And uh, today, though, the, all the rage uh, with stories are trilogies, right? You've got things like Lord of the Rings, um, Hunger Games, Divergent. And if you start reading one of those trilogies, or you, those have all been made into movies, you start watching the movies, if you drop into the third book or the third film, you got a little head scratching to do. Um, so as it turns out, Jesus loved a good story too. He, he was the master storyteller. And he loved trilogies. He loved to tell stories back to back to back, especially when he had a really important point that he wanted to drive down deep into the minds and hearts of the hearers. And this is exactly what we find Jesus doing in Luke chapter 15, as he tells a trilogy of stories to drive his message down deep into, into our hearts, really. So look with me at Luke 15. It starts in verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I, I love the way that um, teacher and scholar Dale Bruner translates these two verses. He says, um, it goes like this, when all the sleazy and the immoral elements were starting to approach Jesus to listen to him, the serious religious and their Bible teachers were starting to grumble, saying, this guy welcomes the most immoral types, and he has meals with them. He purposely refuses to translate the word as Pharisees because he says, in everyone's mind, that means somebody else. 
So he translates it, the seriously religious and their Bible teachers. So this morning, if the shoe fits, okay, you, you, can, you can wear that at least throughout the sermon. Um, but the accusation that these religious leaders make against Jesus is a really critical one to grasp. They say he receives sinners and eats with them. It's, it's worse than that, actually. Um, Jesus actively welcomes sinners. He seeks them out. He chooses to socialize with them, share meals with them. In our culture, it would be he has coffee with them. Okay. He, he is that guy. Um, in their minds, it's guilt by association of a sort. The rabbis long ago used to teach that this was a really bad idea to associate with people like this, maybe even a sinful idea. One rabbi said, let not a man associate with the wicked even to bring him near to the law. Now, Jesus thinks that their idea is a bad idea, even an ungodly idea. So that prompts him to teach this trilogy, one story after another after another. And the third story, as Jesus did, is where we'll spend most of our time. But again, with trilogies, to make good sense out of the third story, you need to at least get the flow of the first two. So we'll look at those first two volumes in Jesus' trilogy briefly so we can make good sense of the third. It starts in verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. Okay, They were grumbling about him hanging out with sinners, so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. You know, Jesus here shrewdly invites his critics to find themselves in his story, right? He says, who, who wouldn't go after a sheep that was lost, right? And the implied answer is, yeah, we would do that. We would do that, even if it seems a little over the top, <clears throat> right? I mean, if you're going to risk 99 sheep to go after the one, that better be one heck of a sheep, Right? If you're going to take that risk. And then if you find it, you're really going to throw a party? I mean, a party with all your neighbors? Maybe roast two or three sheep to celebrate getting the one sheep? <clears throat> I mean, is really a, a 1% increase in sheepness? Is it really that big a deal? Um, but it's a, it's a pretty simple story, right? Something of value is lost. An all-out search ensues, and then there's an over-the-top party when it's found, right? That's kind of the plot of volume one in Jesus' trilogy. After he gets them on board, though, then he makes his point. Verse 7, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy, more over-the-top joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So if you think it's a little over the top to leave the 99, go after the one, and then throw a party over a sheep, Jesus says it's even more over the top 
even more joy over one sinner who repents. That's right, one sinner, one sleazy, immoral type, as Bruner translates it. The party, when that happens, will be way over the top for just one wayward one who is found. Okay, that's volume one in Jesus' trilogy of stories. Here's volume two. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Okay. Now, it's pretty much the same plot line, almost exactly the same plot line, with different characters, right? This time, instead of a shepherd and a sheep, it's a woman and a coin. And again, it's a little over the top. The woman likes to tear the house apart to find the missing coin. And when she's done, what's she do? Calls all her neighbors over for a party. That's a little over the top, right? I mean, maybe you'd text them and say, hey, I found the coin I was looking for. But to have them come over for a party, and again, Jesus having pulled his critics into his story and gets them on board, he makes this point in the next verse. He says, just so I tell you, there is over-the-top joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Over-the-top joy in heaven when just one wayward person repents. That is, they turn from their sin and turn to God. Okay? That's volume two. We're set up now to hear volume three in the trilogy. That's where we'll spend the rest of the time. And we know it by the title, The Story of the Prodigal Son. And it starts like this. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Turns out, even though we call it the story of the prodigal son, Jesus says it's actually about a man who had two sons. Barbara Brown Taylor puts it this way. She says, most of us grew up calling Jesus' story about a man and his two sons, the parable of the prodigal son. But it is not. Jesus did not begin his tale by saying, there was once a man who had a father and an elder brother. There was a man who had two sons, he says, letting us know whom the story is really about, a father who loved his two children to distraction and wanted them to love each other too. So at the least this morning, we need to come up with a better title for volume three in the trilogy, okay? We'll, we'll work on that as we go. He continues, verse 12. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, between the two brothers. And this, this is a shocking development in the story for Jesus' hearers. Okay? Not so much what the son did. I mean, if you've ever been around teenage sons, this is not all that shocking. Okay? Um, it's, it may be sad, but it's not all that shocking because this son, likely amidst some form of teenage rebellion, demands his inheritance. And this is sad, in part because of what we're going to see that he's going to do with it, but mostly because of how badly he wants it. Essentially, he tells his dad, I want your money more than I want you. 
And those are sorrowful words for any dad to hear. But what's shocking in the story is what the father does. He gives it to him. Okay? Um, most dads would have said something like this. No, son, I, I think it's a bad idea. Okay? I've, I've seen the way you spend the money you already have, your video games, that crazy stereo you put in your car. I don't think you'd use the money wisely, son. It's a bad idea. But not this dad. He gives it to him. He gives him all of it. Now, probably in their day, the younger son would have gotten a third of all that his father had. That's the way the inheritance probably would have played out. The younger son would have gotten a third of his father's estate, land, livestock, currency, everything. Jesus implies he gave it all to him. And I would say, maybe you agree, this is being generous to a fault, to give your son this stuff. But it, it doesn't matter what we think. It's Jesus' story, and he has the son, the young son, get his entire inheritance. And as we could have warned him, bad things happen. Okay? Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Um, so the younger son, he acts quickly. I imagine as soon as he could liquidate those assets, um, he gathered up all he had, all of it, and he went to a far country. He took it all. I don't think he was planning to come back. And he went to a far country, as far away from home, as far away from his older brother, and perhaps especially from his father as he could get. And there he lives foolishly. He blows everything. The entire inheritance is gone. And then a famine hits. And being broke and hungry at the same time is a really rough combination. So the son has the sense to get a job, Jesus says. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. So this young Jewish boy has sense enough to find work, in all likelihood, from a Gentile. He's in a far country, and let's be honest, he's raising pigs, and no self-respecting Jew would ever be in that business. Okay? But this is where our young prodigal finds himself, in the pig business, in a pig sty, actually, feeding the pigs, longing to eat their food. I have serious doubt if their food would have been kosher. He's that hungry. He wants it. And yet, Jesus says, no one would even give that to him. No one gave him anything. And there, in that pigsty, in the middle of that famine, absolutely broke, he began to hum that ancient Jewish chorus. If it weren't for bad luck, I've had no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Okay. It's in Proverbs. Look, look it up. <laughs> so then he has a kind of epiphany, right? Look at the next verse. Uh, when he came to himself, 
He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? So he says, even the day laborers, the minimum wagers that are working on my dad's ranch are eating better than me. So there in the pigsty, he hatches a plan. Here's his plan. I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, the plan seems to be driven primarily by hunger, not by any real remorse over what he had done to his father. But note, too, what does drive the plan. I like what, what Dale Bruner said. He says, the memory of a good father precedes his choice to return. So what do we make of this plan? Okay, This plan he puts together. It has some really strong, good points, doesn't it? Um, he confesses his wrong choices as sin against God and his father. He doesn't say, um, dear dad, I made a financial miscalculation. You know, he doesn't call it that. He doesn't blame it on the fact that he had too much trans fat or high fructose corn syrup when he was a child, and so he ended up making poor choices. He takes responsibility of it, and he says, no, I have sinned. I have sinned. He calls it sin. He takes responsibility for it from a very humble posture. He says, I'm not worthy even to be called your son. But we also see that his plan has some weak points, weak motivations perhaps. It's hunger, not sorrow, that seems to be his motivation. And, he, and his plan is to work it off himself. He's gonna, still going to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. The problem, as it turns out, is that prodigals don't even have bootstraps. So better, for, better or worse, it's the only plan he's got, so he runs with it. Here's how it plays out. He arose, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and Bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now, if we were titling chapters in the third volume of the trilogy, I suppose you could title this, this chapter, uh, Plan Interrupted. Okay, Because he doesn't even get home before his plan veers off course, right? doesn't even get it out of his mouth, and it's going a totally unexpected direction, a good direction, but it's a different direction. We learn that while he was still a long way off, it's interesting, it's the same language that was used to describe the country he went to, a country that was a far country, a long way off. And I wonder if it may describe more than just his geography. It describes that he's still a long way from being right with his father. 
while he's still a long way off, Jesus says, his father saw him. And I don't think that's just coincidence, happenstance. I don't imagine that his dad's coming out of the hardware store. He just happens to glance down the road and catches a glimpse of a familiar face. What do you know? My son's come back. The way Jesus describes this father, I imagine he was always looking down that road. Every time he came out of any store, he was looking, he was checking. When he sat on his porch, he was scanning the horizon. When he was out working in the fields, he was looking over his shoulder to see that familiar gate. Maybe a little less swagger this time, but that familiar gate coming. He was always looking, searching, we might say, the way the shepherd looks for a lost sheep or a woman for a lost coin as the first two volumes would have put it. But then it happens. The father saw him, and he felt compassion, and he ran. Now, scholars, some scholars tell us that Middle Eastern fathers don't run. It's not dignified. They don't run. But let me say that Middle Eastern fathers who are like God do. They run like crazy. That robe is flapping in the breeze, and they are running, running towards their son. Dale Bruner wisely says that, that the father running, it's the most, most cross-like thing in our story. It reminds us of the cross of Jesus more than anything else in this story. As the father throws dignity aside and runs to show compassion on his wayward son. And the confession that he hatched there in that pigsty in what we could call the kingdom of far, far away is, is interrupted, it seems, by his father running and hugging and kissing and then barking out instructions to servants for a party that was going to be over the top. They're going to kill the fatted calf. They're going to have veal at that party. You know where you get veal? You get veal at the Angus barn. Okay? That's who's catering this party. This is an Angus barn level party that they're throwing because his son has been found. Right? Why, didn't he, why didn't he finish the confession? It, it could be that he was just interrupted by his dad. I like to think that he was overpowered by the undeserved love, by the unmerited grace that came pouring over him from the father who he had just hoped would let him be his employee, let alone his son. See, to propose servanthood when sonship is offered is both folly and rude. I think he was speechless at the greeting he received. He was overpowered by the love that he received from his father. Because he's not only almost run over and hugged and kissed by his dad, he gets the best robe, says, and he gets a ring on his finger. And one commentator described that, that ring as a first century visa card with your dad's signature. It had his seal on it, and you could stamp things and buy things with it. You had, you had authority and power with that. And he gets shoes. Slaves didn't have shoes back in the day. 
See, he's welcomed back, not as a slave, but as a son. He's back as family. And so the father says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There's that language again, right? From volume one and volume two. Lost and now found. And he's not, he's not far away anymore. Even though he's still a long way off distance-wise, the father has run to him, and now he is near to his father again. He's home again. And so the story says, you can read it there, and they began to celebrate. And I, I'm thinking, what is up with Bible translators? Okay. Can they not at least give us an exclamation point? Right? This is how it reads. My son was dead. He's alive again. He's lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. It's like, it's like these guys have never been to a party in their life. Okay? It should look like this. And they began to celebrate. Right? Like eight exclamation points. All caps. Um, this is a party to end all parties. Now, if Jesus just ended his story right here, he made his point, right? You get it. You get his point. But Jesus is talking to a particular audience, you remember? He's talking to the seriously religious and their Bible teachers. And he wants them and he wants us to find ourselves in this story. So he tacks on kind of an epilogue to volume three in a trilogy. This is how it goes. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Let me tell you, you got to be doing some serious dancing if it can be heard out in the field. Okay? And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat, okay, let alone veal from the Angus barn, a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But then when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So the son's angry. He refuses to go in. He is the picture of what we saw in verse 2 when it said that the serious religious, seriously religious and their Bible teachers grumbled about Jesus going to these parties. But you have to admit, right, <clears throat> the older brother has a point, wouldn't you say? Um, now, I'm a younger brother, not, not like in the story, but like, okay, like in the story and the fact that I'm a younger brother, I actually have an older brother, that's all I, I have brother-wise. So I don't have any personal perspective on this, but Barbara Brown Taylor does, she writes, she says, I am an eldest child myself, and I know what it is like to break in parents to step aside as they exercise their new and improved skills on younger siblings, and then to take the rap for the little criminals when they mess up. 
She says, I remember one Saturday afternoon when I was supposed to be looking after my two sisters and my parents came home early. Within minutes, they had hauled me by my elbow to the upstairs bathroom to show me my little sister clutching a fat black crayon in her fist, putting the finishing touches on the claw-footed porcelain bathtub that had once been white. Did she get spanked? No, she was just a little baby who did not know any better. Did I get spanked? Yes, I was the older sister who should have kept her out of trouble. She says older siblings frequently get the raw end of the deal as the elder brother apparently does in the parable at hand. My guess is that he was not incensed by his younger brother's return or even by his father's forgiveness of him, but by the celebration. Let the penitent come home by all means, but let him come home to penance, not a party. Where is the moral instruction in that kind of welcome? What about facing consequences? What kind of world would this be if we all made a practice of rewarding sinners while the God-fearing folk are still out in the fields? And she adds, what do you have to do to get a party around here? You know, what's interesting to me is to notice how much the two brothers are alike, even though the older brother would deny any family resemblance. Think about it with me. Um, the younger brother, what was his plan? Come back and be his father's slave. And that is exactly what the older brother thinks that he is. He says to his dad, he said, look, dad, I have always served you and obeyed your commands. That's the sum insight we get into his relationship with his father. It's about obeying dad's commands. And he says, I was always obedient to you. Now, what the father could have said back, he could have, but he didn't. He wouldn't. He could have said, um, so you have always obeyed me? Always? What about now? While well, I'm begging you to love your brother. Both brothers, it seems, have been far, far away from their father. And the thing is, that's what they both wanted. They both wanted to celebrate without their dad. The younger brother, more obviously, went far, far away and spent all his money on reckless living. But the older brother, he thinks in the same terms. He thinks in terms of things his father never gave him so that he could have enjoyed them with his friends. No mention of the father. And so they are both horribly estranged from family. We hear the estrangement when the older brother chooses his words carefully and says, but when this son of yours came, he can't even bear to use the language of my brother. He's your son. Far, far away indeed. Listen again to Barbara Brown Taylor as she describes the father's response to his firstborn son. She says, here is where the loving father earns his title. 
He does not take a swing at his firstborn, as some of us might have been tempted to do, nor even remind him to honor his father. He knows that he has lost both of his sons. He has lost the younger one to a life of recklessness, but he has lost the older one to a more serious fate, to a life of angry self-righteousness that takes him so far away from his father that he might as well be feeding pigs in a far country. And so the father is pleading with his firstborn, come to the party. Come to the party with me. You know what's interesting? Is that the father is offering to both his sons exactly what they longed for. A great party. And it's interesting. That's the very thing that the Pharisees accused him of. Receiving sinners and partying with them. I am not like this father. I would like to be, but I am not. Um, I could imagine instead of pleading with my pouty son at this point, I could hear my voice saying something much more like, okay, suit yourself. You made your bed, you sleep in it. You want to stay out here instead of going to the party? I don't want to see your face at the party. You stay out here until the party's over, okay? And then you can clean it up afterwards, all right? There you go. Na 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 or whatever <laughs> the adult version of, of that is. Um, see, that's, that's not what the father says in Jesus' story. He says, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That little verse, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It's the best one sentence description of the kingdom of God I've ever read. Dale Bruner says that his wife, he's, he's older now, he's living in a retirement home, and part of what they have to do there is have their, um, their funeral plans put together. Um, and so he said his wife asked him the awkward question of what Bible verse do you want to have read at your funeral? And he said, the one verse that I'm sure I want to have read is this one. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It's... Uh, it's not a bad choice, is it? You know, this is some father, isn't it? Um, it's interesting, the word prodigal means, first definition, um, according to Google, spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastelessly, wastefully, excuse me, extravagant. Hence, the prodigal son. But what you may not realize is there's a second definition to the word prodigal. And it reads like this, having or giving something on a lavish scale. Giving something on a lavish scale is the second definition of prodigal. And it's with that in mind that Barbara Brown Taylor writes that the older brother wants his father to love him for all that he has done. And his father does love him, but not for any of that, any more than he loves the younger brother for what he has done. He does not love either of his sons according to what they deserve. He just loves them. 
more because of who he is than because of who they are. And the elder brother cannot stand it. He cannot stand a love that transcends right and wrong, a love that throws homecoming parties for prodigal sinners and expects the hardworking righteous to rejoice. He cannot stand it, and so he stands outside, outside his father's house, outside his father's love, refusing his invitation to come inside. But his father turns out to be prodigal too in that second sense. At least as far as his love is concerned, he never seems to tire of giving it away. Son, he says, reclaiming the boy, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. His love for one child does not preclude his love for the other. The younger one's recklessness cannot deflect it any more than the elder one's righteousness. They are a family. They belong to one another, and a party for one is a party for all, she says. We had to celebrate and rejoice, the loving father says to his older son, because this brother of yours... Not my son, but your brother was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. So maybe, maybe the better title to volume three in the trilogy is the prodigal father. That's how Jesus ends his story. And it kind of leaves us hanging. What happened? Um. Did the son come and join the party? We don't know. How long did the father plead? We don't know. Jesus doesn't say. I think he doesn't say because he wants us to write the ending. He wants us to think it through. So, if I was to ghostwrite a fuller ending for Jesus, which sounds like a very dangerous thing to do, um, I would write this way. How long did the father plead? Long enough. Did the son come into the party? Oh, yeah. You bet he did. And they began to celebrate with lots of exclamation points. What if you were writing the ending to the story? How would you write it? Let me ask you. How have you written it? Can you find yourself in Jesus' story amongst the brothers there? See, that's why Jesus told it, after all, for the sleazy and the immoral to find their place and for the serious religious and their Bible teachers to find theirs. And that they all, that we all, would find grace and love that's greater than our sin and brings us in from far, far away. You know, uh, nearly 500 years ago, um, one of the leaders of Germany um, kind of conscripted two young scholars to write something to help educate youth in the ways of the faith. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, it's still out there. You can still read it. It's broken in some cases into 52 parts, so you can read a section every week uh, with your older kids, or, or just it's written also for pastors. Um, we're a lot like kids, and I guess that's why they wrote it. Um, but there's a question, question number 60. And it says, how art thou righteous before God? Okay, I told you, they wrote it a long time ago. That's how they talked. How art thou righteous before God? Listen to the answer. 
think, I think this is how the story should end. Perhaps the brothers should write this. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and that I am still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. And that's what Jesus is doing with his story today. He is inviting you with a believing heart, to trust in the good work that he did to draw you back to the Father. And once there, he wants you to invite others to the party. How does Jesus' trilogy of stories pull on your heart? If these stories don't pull on your heart, you might not have a hitch. You might need to get that looked into. It might be pulling you back from a land far, far away. Even though you're physically here, you're far, far away from, from Jesus and his Father. And he is inviting you back today. Maybe for the very first time, he's inviting you home. By the good work that he has done, Jesus has done on the cross to make payment for your sins, to make a way for you back home, he's inviting you into that today. It may, be, it may be as you hear these stories, faces of friends who are far away from God and family members are flashing through your mind and what Jesus may be pulling you into with this story today is to invite them lovingly, invite them to the party. That is the kingdom of God. The worship team's gonna come now and I just want you to not join in the song. I want you to reflect on the lyrics. It's a retelling of our story once again. It's called The Prodigal, and it tells our story in song. And I just want you to think about these kind of questions and think about what Christ is pulling on your heart by the Spirit and the Word this morning. And then I'll give us directions for how we're going to close the service. So let me invite you to just stay seated. Use this time to pray and listen and reflect, please.